1 Thessalonians chapter 5, some of you may be still making your way there. Let me just describe uh, last week's lesson as by way of introduction, and, uh, and we'll get going. So last week, we looked at how the hope of our future should impact how we live in the present. Uh, we saw that it should cause us to live in two distinct ways, that as we look for uh, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we should do so, first of all, with, e- with expectation. Living an expectant life of his return informs how we live obediently in the present. And secondly, we looked at how we should live with a focus on edification, which is a big word which simply means to build up. And the idea is that we should be built up in our faith and that we should actively be building others up in their faith. And when it comes to, to edification, to building one another up, we saw last week that there's two basic types of people in the church. There are those who are contributors and there are those who are consumers. And um, we saw that uh, consumers are illustrated by a mommy-baby relationship. In a mommy-baby relationship, the mom is the contributor in the relationship, and the baby is the consumer in the relationship. And I used my grandson, Jet, my 10th grandchild, as as an illustration in this. He's five months old, and we don't expect him to be a contributor. We don't want him to go out and get a job and help pay the mortgage or have chores around the house or do dishes. Why? Because he's a baby. And his job right now is to consume and is to grow up. And that's the key. We, we are called, hey, in the church, some come in and they're babes in Christ. And, and really, they're just, they're consuming. They're not contributing. And that's cool for a season. But babies are supposed to grow up. Right? And so this is our hope. It's our hope for our children. It's our hope for our children here at the church. That, that as you grow in Christ, then you begin to function as a contributor in the family of God. And that means that you're, you're growing and then you're imparting what you are learning and how you're growing, you're imparting that to other people. You're helping other people to grow in Christ and, and you're fulfilling your role and re- your responsibility as a member of the family. So the question then becomes, how? How are children of God supposed to grow up. And that's the focus of our study today. Here's the big idea of our study today. I'll put it up on the screen for you. What are the essentials for a happy, healthy, thriving church family? What are some essentials for us? That's our big idea. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12 is where we pick it up. Paul says, and we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. I want you to notice a key word that Paul uses in the introduction to this section. It's there in verse 12. He uses the word brethren. We urge you, 
brethren. Brethren was Paul's favorite name for believers. If you read through the New Testament and all of Paul's writings, what you will discover is that over 60 times, Paul uses this word brethren, and would you know that nearly half of those times are in First and Second Thessalonians? About 27 times he uses this word brethren. And understand why. Paul saw the, the local church as family. That as each member is born again by the Spirit of God, we become brothers and sisters in Christ and God builds us up as a family and then God places overseers over that family. They operate in the role of spiritual fathers. This is really the idea and the structure. And understand, the family is the foundation of every culture. The family is the foundation of every culture, and every family is shaped by their values. Uh, what we value shapes what we do, and what we do establishes our culture. And here's the deal. Healthy cultures never happen by accident. They are a combination of what you create and what you allow, and what you create and what you allow is always shaped by what you value. That's true in the church family. It's true in your family. There's things that you create, there's things that you allow. Let me give you an example. In a healthy family, if, you've, if you're a healthy family and you have kids, then one of your values as a healthy family, and, and, and I'm talking about families that are, are, are God-believing followers of the Lord, and, and if your family is healthy, then you have certain values. And where your kids are concerned, your value is that you would raise a morally responsible, biblically responsive child. That's what you value. And so because you value that, you create things and you allow things. What you create, you create loving structure. You create protective order in your house. You create biblical instruction and times for biblical instruction in your house. These are things you create. And then as well, there's things that you allow. As your kids grow and mature, you're going to allow them to have expanded freedoms. You're going to allow them to have certain privileges. And then so this is what you create and what you allow. And as well, in a healthy family, there's things that you won't allow. You're not going to allow disrespect. You're not going to allow lying. You're not going to allow immoral conduct or unsafe conduct. And so this is what you do, and it all stems from what you value. Now, if your family is unhealthy, then you have other values that are contrary to the things of the Lord. And these things, these other values, ultimately will hurt your family. I'll give you an example. If you're a workaholic, then what happens is you're going to have things that you create and things that you allow. If you're a workaholic and, and, and you idolize your job, then you're going to create business opportunities, you're going to create long work days, and ultimately you're going to create bitterness and resentment in your children. And as well, because you're consumed with that idol, then you're, there's things that you're going to allow that you shouldn't. You're going to allow crazy schedule to dominate your life. You're going to allow lax supervision because you're not there for the follow-through. Uh, you're going to allow poor accountability. Again, because you're not around for the follow-through, your job has consumed your time. And so the, the point is, is that whatever culture that you end up with, whether it's healthy or whether it's unhealthy, it all stems from what you value. Now, with that in mind, Paul here in our text, he's focusing on the church family of God. 
And he points out, I'll put this on the screen for you because it's going to be the outline for our study, two things that we should prioritize and value in our church family here. And the first is family leadership, and the second is family partnership. These are the things that we're going to focus on today. So let's start with family leadership. Paul says, we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you, <coughs> excuse me, and are over you in the Lord and those who admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love's sake, uh, in love for their work's sake, be at peace among yourself. Listen, without leadership, the family falls apart. And the Bible lays out the family structure this way, that the father's the head of the home, that the mother stands with him in love and cooperation, and then the children's role is to obey their parents. Can I get an amen? Right? That's their role. Now, this is the order that God has placed, that he has laid down clearly in his word. And what Paul is saying here is that that order extends to our church family. It extends to our church family. Listen to what Paul told the Ephesians. He said, and he himself, the Lord God, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. What's he talking about here? He's talking about those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the authority structure that he has laid down, the leadership structure of the church family. And what is their job? It is to equip the saints, verse 12, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children. The idea is babies need to grow up. We should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, we may grow up. That's the point. Families grow. Kids are supposed to grow. We may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Jesus Christ. From whom? The whole body. That's, put your name there. The whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. There's your name again. According to the effective working by which each part, that's your name again, does its share. And what's the result? It causes growth of the body for the edifying or the building up of itself in love. Here's the idea. We all have a role to play in the family of God. And, and, and so this is, this is all of our role. Now with that in mind, notice first, Paul says to the Thessalonians there in verse 12, that they are to recognize those who are called into a leadership role in their church. Here's the idea of that word recognize in verse 12. It means literally to obediently respect to obediently respect. Now, I come from a fire department background. It's a, it's a paramilitary organization. Now, that, I found out the hard way that's a, that's a bad word in Ireland. They don't like paramilitary. It means something totally different in Ireland. But in the States, paramilitary simply means that it's established on a military structure, military command structure. And so what I discovered very quickly in the fire service is that you have to have a healthy respect for rank because there are different ranks of individuals and you have to subordinate yourself according to your rank and where you fit in the rank. Now understand that these different ranks of authority, they, it's not an ego thing. It, it, it was for some guys. It's not a power trip thing. It was for some guys. 
but it's really not set up so that somebody can exercise their ego and, and have a power trip. The idea is that it's set up for the health of the organization, right? It's set up for health because without order and without structure, without command, without control, there's danger and there's chaos. And so this is so critically important. It is, by the way, why in warfare, smart folks who are waging war always first go after command and control. Because the result is chaos and they can bring destruction. This is why, guys, you've got a big target on your back and the enemy wants to attack you as the head of your homes. Because, you know, the enemy always goes after leadership, right? And so what Paul says is that the church is supposed to operate this same way. That there, the members are to, Paul says, recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Recognize simply means I'm going I'm to obey obediently. I'm going to, I'm going to acknowledge that they have authority, which comes from God. They haven't taken it upon themselves. I'm going to recognize that. And what's my response then? I'm recognizing those who labor and are over me in the Lord. Now, there's two things that are implied there. Number one, that the leaders must first be faithful. Recognize those who labor among you. Here's the implication. The idea is that the laboring is that the leader is faithful. Here's, here's the thing. I am well aware, painfully aware, that there is a church structure, there are church structures that are inherently unhealthy. That the, the, the pastor, the leader, uh, leaders plural, rather than being those uh, servant leaders, um, they, and rather than feed the sheep, they beat the sheep. Some of you have come from a background like that where there's been abuse in this way and, and you've suffered, you know, if I can use the term, spiritual abuse. And, and, and somebody in the name of leadership has really crossed the line. I understand that. And that's why this first implication here when, when Paul says recognize those who labor among you, what, what, what is in view is that they are faithfully fulfilling their duty and their responsibility to watch over the flock, to feed the flock, to shepherd the flock. That's, that's implied here. The Apostle Peter said this, And now a word to you who are elders in the churches. I too am an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and I too will share in his glory when he is revealed to the whole world. As a fellow elder, I appeal to you. Listen to what Peter says. Care for the flock. He doesn't say beat the flock. He says care for the flock. And here's the key, that God has, instructed, or has entrusted to you. Let me just say right here, pause button. When I'm talking about that there are leaders in the body of Christ. And when I'm saying that your role is to respect and obey the leadership, can, can I just point out the elephant in the room? It's a little awkward. Because I'm, I'm the pastor, and basically what I'm saying is, hey, y'all need to recognize my authority, and you need to submit to my authority. Which, which sounds pretty egotistical, right? It, it, it sounds, you know, kind of power trip-ish. It sounds kind of like self-exalting. But I'm not the one who said it. The Lord said it. And God entrusted me with this role. 13 years ago when I planted this church, God called me to this. And so, so yes, this is what God has instructed. And yes, this is the authority structure here. And yes, this is what you're called to here. But understand, it's not Ted saying this. It's God saying this. 
<coughs> so Peter says, hey, shepherds, elders, pastors, care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, not for what you're going to get out of it, but because you're eager to serve God. Don't lord it over the people assigned to your care, but lead them by your own good example. And when the great shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of never-ending glory and honor. Peter uses words like care for them, watch over them, lead them, right? This is the attitude, this is the idea. The second thing that's implied in verse 12 is that leaders, as they are faithful, listen, they hold an authoritative rank. They hold an authoritative rank. And this is what Peter goes on to say in the very next verse, 1 Peter 5.5. 5. In the same way, you younger men must accept the authority of the elders, and all of you serve each other in humility, for God opposes the proud, but he favors the humble, or he gives grace to the humble. Now, Peter says something interesting in the beginning of that verse. He says, in the same way. What's he talking about here? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, just in the same way that God has ordained and anointed and called men to lead, he, in a sense, has ordained, anointed, and called you to follow and to obey and to place yourself in the rank that God has placed you, to embrace that rank that God's placed you in. Now, when Peter says you must accept the authority of the elders, that word authority, it's a, it's a Greek military term. And, and it, it's the word hupotasso. And it literally means to rank under. And it's written in the errorist imperative. And here's what that means. That means that not only does it mean that outwardly you have to submit yourself to your leaders, but it means inwardly. It means in your heart you have to respect them. It, it, it's not, oh, you know, I'm going to pay them lift service, yes, sir, and then, you know, in my heart or under my breath or behind their back that I'm tearing them down. This errorist imperative says this is the attitude of your heart that you have. You have to accept in your heart the authority of the elders. Why? Because this is what God has established, this church, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. This is Jesus' church. Reliance Church doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to anybody. It belongs to Jesus. And so because it belongs to Jesus, he says, here's the rank and file order and these are who I'm going to place where and it's his prerogative. It's not, it's not an act of men. So, the idea is that the church is to recognize God-ordained authority, and then to respond to God-ordained authority. Why? Two reasons. Two reasons. Number one, as I've just covered, their role is assigned by God himself. I just read it, 1 Peter 5, 2. Care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Titus said this, Titus 3, 1. Remind the people to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. The writer of Hebrews says this, Remember your leaders who taught you the word of God. Think of all the good that has come from their lives and follow the example of their faith, right? Now, the second reason that the church is to recognize the authority and respond obediently to the leaders that God has placed, it's for your benefit. It's for your benefit. 
Again, the writer of Hebrews says this, Obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls and they are accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy and not with sorrow. That would certainly not be for your benefit. So it's for your benefit. And that's why Paul says in verse 13, Esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. See, the result, because it's for your benefit, is that it brings you peace. And that's the idea. And so there's two things that we should prioritize and value in the church family. Number one is family leadership. We just looked at that. Let's dial into family partnership. Our second point. Notice again, verse 14 and 15. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Here's the deal. Paul's making the point here that leaders alone cannot do all the work of the ministry. That it takes a family partnership, right? Just like your family. You, guys, you, you're functioning as, as the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. That's what the Bible says. You are to lead your children. You are to lead your family. You are to embrace that role. But you can't do it all yourself. The whole family has to be in on the, hey, this is the direction we're going, and this is the role and the responsibility that each member in the family plays. And I want you to see the goal. Notice at the end of verse 15, Paul says, here's the goal, Always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. That's the goal. Keep that in mind. Here's why that's important. Understand, that's important because what Paul now goes on to identify is specific people in our family here at the church, specific personality types, specific, specific people types that need help, that need our help where the family just needs to circle the wagons and come alongside and help. And the first one that Paul mentions, notice it there in verse 14. He says, we exhort you, brethren. So again, he's not talking to pastors per se. He's talking to you as, as, as the members of the church, as members of the family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. So he's talking about your duty and your responsibility to the guy sitting next to you, to the gal sitting behind you, to the person that, that you greet, to the person you serve with in the women's ministry, whatever it is. He says, we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. So the first specific group of people in the church that we need to care for are the unruly ones, right? Now that word unruly... <clears throat> literal definition of that word is careless and out of line. That's what that word unruly means. It was applied to a soldier in Paul's day who wouldn't keep rank, but instead insisted on marching his own way, marching to the beat of his own drum. Let me give you some examples. This could be a brother or a sister in the Lord here at Reliance Church who is living a compartmentalized life to where they wink and cherry pick at Scripture. They, they, they cherry pick the Scriptures that they like and they wink at the ones they don't like and just, eh, I'll take this, I don't want that. 
all the scriptures that talk about what Christ has done for me, how I'm saved by grace through faith in him. It's not of my works. It's everything that Christ has done. And I'm just living in grace. I like that. I'll take that. But all of the stuff that talks about my responsibility to work out my salvation, my responsibility to turn the other cheek, my responsibility to practice forgiveness, I don't like those ones, and I'm not going to live that way. This is a person who's careless and out of line in their life. They're not walking according to the way that they should in the family of God. And so what does Paul say we're to do? Paul says that we're to warn them right? Hey, brother, listen, the, the Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death, and you're going according to your own way, and you're, you're conveniently taking those scriptures that you like, and you're ignoring the ones that you don't, and, and it's, it's a warning. This could also include somebody who's careless and out of line. It could include somebody who's undermining the teaching. The, the, uh, of God's word, whether it be in a Bible study or whether it be from the pulpit or whatever, and, and they're saying, oh, you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about, and they, and they bring an undermining to, to the work. It could be somebody who stirs up division. It could be somebody who's a perpetual gossip and bringing discord among the brethren. Or it could be somebody who doesn't take direction. Let me give you a couple examples. So one of the things we have are, here are community groups. These are home Bible studies. And strategically, the reason we have community groups is because we, we know and have experienced that uh, as God adds daily to the church, and as we've got a couple of thousand people in the church now, that people could be lost in the crowd. And, and we don't want anybody lost in the crowd. What we want is this connectivity. We want you to connect in relationship with other people. We want you to connect with and grow in your relationship with the Lord. And so what do we do? We take small groups. Where, where, you, where, you know, you can't just blow in and blow out. No, you're going to come and you're going you're gonna to make friends. These are people that you're, you're going to, you know, live your life with. People that, you know, if you're, God forbid, should go to the hospital, these are the people that come and see you in the hospital. These are the people that you're encouraging, that you're spurring on, and you're growing together. And so when, in setting that up, what we have done is we've given instruction to the, to the leaders. We've said, look, here's a couple of things that you need to understand that you absolutely, a bullseye, you got to hit. Number one, it has to be going through God's word. That's the whole point. It's a Bible study. Uh, we're not going to read seven steps to a better you and talk about that. We're going to go through the word of God, okay? And then in the going through the word of God, look, understand, Bible study leader, this isn't your mini pulpit. This isn't your little church that you get to go and preach at everybody for an hour and you do all the talking. We want people engaged in dialogue. Now, your job is to keep it on track, make sure that it doesn't, you know, devolve into, well, what do you think it means? And what do you think it means? And let's have a committee vote. No, you keep it on track. This is what it says. This is what it means. What does that mean for us? Let's talk about it. And so this is the direction that we've given. Now, if we have a Bible study, if it comes to our attention, hey, there's somebody in a, in a community group in one of our, our home Bible studies, and they're, they're treating it like it's their little pulpit, we're going to talk to them. We're going to warn them, hey, this isn't how we're doing it here. Listen, there, there is, there is a, there's a way that we're going, and you want to march the beat of your own drum. That's not going to happen. You get the idea. See, so, so this is what that looks like. And how do we handle it? Paul says, we warn them. We warn them. And that word warn, it simply means to put into mind. To put into mind. It's not a threat. It's a reminder. 
Brenda and I, we, we've got two of our grandkids this week and next week. Uh, their parents uh, are off on a jolly vacation to, uh, to Japan. They're eating sushi, and we're watching their kids. So, um, and we're having, we're having a great time. But recently, Brenda and I, we got, we got these recliners, and they're motorized, you know? And uh, you know you're old when you just, oh, you know? Well, Holland, he just thinks it's a ride, you know? So... So Brenda says to him, Holland, that's not a toy. You're going to burn out the motor. Don't use the chair that way. Well, yesterday we hear Auburn, his sister, well, first of all, we hear, right? And Auburn says, Holland, Donnie said, don't do that. Perfect illustration. What do you've got? You've, you've got the brothers and sisters in the family admonishing one another, right? They're speaking to one another. They're putting into mind, hey, this is, this is the way that we're supposed to be functioning. You're not functioning in that way. And so, so Paul says, hey, listen, you, 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 have to, you have to warn those who are unruly. That's part of your job, guys, is together, you as brothers and sisters in Christ. The second thing he says there in verse 14, another, another type of person that needs our help together are the faint-hearted. He says, comfort the faint-hearted. Now, that word faint-hearted, it literally means small-souled. Small-souled. And here's the idea. The idea is that people who typically react by giving up and quitting, right? And, and here's the deal. These are people that are easily overwhelmed. And, and it's often characterized by what I, what I call Eeyore tendencies, you know, where the person, they tend to look on the dark side of things, they tend to be complainers, they like to throw pity parties, right? And, and here's the deal, every family just about has people that are small-souled. You've got kids that are like, they, they will never give up, they're driven, they're not easily daunted, they, they are conquerors, and they just approach life that way. And then you maybe have another child who's small-souled. And, and just easily overwhelmed, just, you know, wanting to quit. And Paul says, look, the answer for them is to comfort them. To comfort them, right? And that Greek word for comfort, it's made up of two words. The word near and the word speech. Near and speech. The idea is instead of scolding them, because those that are driven and they see somebody who's small-souled, oh, I just want to give up. Well, people that are driven that don't really act that way by nature, they, they, they have a tendency to, get, to, you know, respond and say, come on, buck up, you can do this. Come on, you can, you stop being, you know, so weak, you know. That's not what Paul says. He says, comfort them, bring them near to you and speak to them. Get close, speak to them tenderly. That's the idea. Now, I'm not usually a guy that uses props, but, but I'm going to use one here to illustrate this point, all right? Pulmonary function test right now. So, right? Okay, yeah, good. <laughs> Everybody clap for the 55-year-old guy that can blow up a balloon. All right. All right. So, so we're supposed to comfort the faint-hearted. Here's the faint-hearted brother or sister, right? And they're saying, oh, this is, this is hard. I want to give up. 
oh, everybody else is finding their niche in the church, but I just can't seem to do it as good as everybody else. I think I'm going to give up. This, this is, oh, man, I just, I don't know, you know. Now, what's your tendency if you're not a faint-hearted person and somebody's like, oh, it's, it's just so difficult, it's so hard, it's just, your tendency is to want to go, get out of here, right? You just let them go. I want you to hear that word comfort, near in speech, it's written in the present middle imperative. And here's what that means. It means that you're comforting of them, it's ongoing, and it's a choice. It's a choice. You might go, dude, come on. You quit every day. Like, you know, it's, it's Tuesday. That means you quit. Knock it off. And you just want to be like that where you just let them go. No, no, no. The, mi- the present middle imperative of comforting them, bringing them near, speaking to them, it means you make a choice to encourage this person. And so here's this person, man. They're, they're, they're just, they're, they're weak, right? And, and, and they, they are, they're, they're, they're faint-hearted, and, and they just want to give up. And what you do is you come alongside them, and you say, brother, the Bible says, don't grow weary in doing good, for in due season you'll reap if you don't lose heart. You just came alongside, you comforted them, you encouraged them. Hey, you know what? I know it's difficult right now, but listen, here's what the Bible says in the book of James. We're supposed to count it all joy when we go through trials, and I know that sounds crazy, but here's why. Because the Bible says that God's going to use that trial to grow you. So I know you want to quit right now. Don't quit because God's using that trial. Man, you, you just blew him up. Hey, brother, look, I know, you know, the, the Apostle Peter, he was going through a trial, and, and, and he was addressing the, you know, the church that was going through a trial, and, and they were saying, you know, he told him, look, you think this is a strange thing, like some strange thing is happening to you, like there's got to be something wrong. And he said, nope, you know, don't, don't think that way. Hey, God's allowing you to suffer. Rejoice, because he's letting you be a partaker of his sufferings. That's what the Bible says. You've drawn him near. You're comforting them. You're encouraging them, right? And so, hey, we want to do this with them. Bible says, the present middle imperative, doesn't matter if they're driving you crazy. Man, you, you bring them close to you. You speak to them near speech, man, encouraging, exhorting them. And that's all of our role. Another example in verse 14 of people need our help, who need our help in church family, are the weak. Notice he says there in verse 14, to uphold the weak. Now, what's in view here when he talks about the weak? He's talking about those who are weak in their faith. Those who are weak in their faith. And here's the idea. What he's saying is, don't let them go. Don't let these people go. It's like that movie Backdraft. If you've seen it from years ago, and they've got this saying in it, you go, we go, right? And the guy's got his, his buddy's hand. His buddy's going to fall. He's like, I'm not letting go. You go, we go, man. You, we're gonna, we're, you're going to make it through. I'm going to help carry you through this. And what happens, listen, sometimes in our, in our Christian walk, we can get discouraged, and sometimes our, our faith can be challenged. And we need those brothers and sisters in Christ who are going to speak the word of God to us and who are going to encourage us in our faith. 
And so, so this, is, this is so key. Here's what Isaiah the prophet said. He said, with this news, strengthen those who have tired hands and encourage those who have weak knees. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear, for your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He's coming to save you. Paul, speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he's talking about the different hardships that he had gone through to minister to people who had weak faith or no faith. And he said, I've shown you in, in every way by laboring like this, like I do, that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so being weak in the faith, it can, be, it can mean, you know, they're doubting, they're doubting, they're going through times and periods of doubt. Here's what it also could mean. It could mean that you've got, you know, those that, that are, are, are celebrating, they're, they're mature in their faith, they've got liberty in Christ, and you've got other people who are living legalistic lives. Paul talked about this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 8. They had a situation going on in Corinth where, you know, the Corinthian meat market was selling meat for buck 85 uh, because it had been sacrificed to idols and there were certain people in town, Christians, that were like, I'm not going to eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol. And then you had more mature Christians who were like, dude, an idol means nothing. A meat at a buck 85, like, go have a steak, chill out. Like, you know, their faith was strong. They're like, I'm eating meat that's sacrificed to an idol. It's not going to defile me. Because I've got freedom in Christ, right? And so they had more liberty. They were more mature in their faith. Now, what did Paul do? He, he, didn't, he didn't say, hey, you know, when, when you encounter people that are weak in their faith, you know, rebuke them and, uh, you know, tell them how they're immature. No. He said, look, one of the ways that you can help people who are weak in their faith is just abstain from your liberty. Right? Just abstain from your liberty. Now, we don't have the Corinthian meat market here. We don't have meat sacrificed to idols. That's, that's not so much a thing. But I'll tell you something that, that we do have, alcohol. Now, you, you, you address the situation of alcohol, and I'll just say up front, I'm not a fan. Okay, alcohol and alcoholism has caused a lot of damage in my family. Brenda and I don't drink. We haven't for years. Um, and and I, I, we basically have a rule here at the church that if you're a pastor or an elder, you don't drink. And we take that from 1 Timothy chapter 3, a literal trend, uh, you know, application of 1 Timothy 3. Now, there's others who, who define that differently. And they say, look, um, it's okay for pastors to drink. It's just not cool for anybody to get drunk. So, so if you want to have a glass of wine, you want to have a glass of beer, as long as you're not getting drunk and, and as long as you're, you're being responsible, there's nothing wrong with it. And here's what I would say. Um, I would say, for the most part, I agree. I don't think it's cool for pastors and elders to drink. I just don't. Um, but, but for my, my pastor friends who feel that way, uh, I don't divide fellowship with them over it. Uh, and I would agree that for the church at large, there's nothing wrong with having a drink so long as you're not getting intoxicated. But here's the problem. The problem is, is that uh, well, there's lots of problems and I could just go off on a tangent here. Um, but I'll just say it in the context of what we're talking about. The problem is, is that not everybody feels that way. And so for you, if you're going to uphold the weak, well, sometimes that means that you go, hey, we're going out with so-and-so, and I know that, that you know, they're really uncomfortable with this, so, so I'm going to order a Coke. And, I, and, I, and I'm not going to make them uncomfortable by exercising a liberty that they feel that they don't have. Right? That's biblical, and this is the way that we uphold the weak. Now, 
ministering and encouraging struggling family members, which is what we're talking about here, right? It's hard work. It's hard work. And so what Paul does now is he, he includes key ways that you and I can guard our hearts when, when we are ministering and caring for people as brothers and sisters in Christ, he's given us key ways to guard our hearts as we care for people. I'm going to focus on two of them. There's actually more than that. We, we only have time for two, and we'll do the rest in our message next week. But these two things, two key ways that he talks about, first of all, are patience and purpose. Patience at the end of verse 14, verse 15 deals with purpose. I'm going to tackle purpose first of all. Verse 15, he says, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. That's our purpose, right? What are we doing? We are pursuing what is good both for yourselves <coughs> excuse me, and for all. <clears throat> but the problem is that when you are functioning as a healthy church, which includes coming alongside people who are struggling and exhorting them or offering them comfort or offering them some sort of an ex uh, exhortation, <clears throat> the problem is when a person is hurting, they don't always recognize that what you're doing is, as verse 15 says, pursuing good for both of y'all. They don't necessarily perceive it that way. Let me illustrate it this way. I used to work in the emergency room. And this was before I became a, a paramedic in the fire department, but, but in working in the emergency room, one of my jobs was to assist the doctors when they were performing different procedures. And in one procedure would be sutures. I would set up all the, the suture kit, and I would, you know, get certain things for them because, you know, now they're, they're, they've put on the gloves, they're sterile, and so, hey, go get me this. I'd get that, drop it on the tray, whatever it was. And so I would assist them in that way. Well, one kid we had this, or one day we had this kid come in. He's like three years old. He'd fallen, he'd hit his head, big old gash, he needs stitches in his head. And when you get stitches, basically the way it works is that they take lidocaine in a needle and they stick that needle right in the cut and they numb it all up. Now, it'll eventually get numb and you don't feel a thing, but it, it, it hurts like Hades before that. And so this little three-year-old kid, he said, oh, I totally understand that, that what you're doing is important and that, it's, that I'm not going to hurt in just a minute. No, he's a three-year-old kid. He's, he is screaming like a banshee, man. This kid is losing his mind. My job is to hold him down. Well, he's a powerful little kid. It's taking two of us to hold this kid down. Now, I'm holding his head so the doctor can suture his head. And I've got this nurse, this, this little sweetest gal, and she's trying to hold this kid down. And, and she, as we're, now, again, all the kid knows is that we're trying to kill him. That's what he knows, right? What do we know? We know what our purpose is. We're going to fix you. We're going to make you better. So we're holding this kid down, and this nurse, as she's holding him down, is, is speaking sweetly to him. It's okay, honey. It's okay. We're going to, and he's just, mommy, I want mommy, you know. And she's like, we're going to get your mommy in here in just a little bit. You're going to be okay. Well, this kid hauls off and kicks her in the face. 
just clocks her. And this sweet little gal went from saying, it's okay, honey, your mom's going to be here. I kid you not, she says, okay, we're not getting your mommy, we're sending her away. <laughs> right? What are you doing? Listen, when you care for hurting people, some are going to hurt you back. Okay? Put it on the screen for you. Hurting people hurt people. Hurting people hurt people. And so sometimes when you want to function in this way and somebody lashes out and they hurt you for having the audacity to try and fulfill a good purpose in their lives, listen, the reaction on your part might be, as Paul warns, don't render evil for evil, right? What are you supposed to do? Always pursue what's good both for yourselves and for the hearer. Some of you need to hear that today. Paul said this to the Romans. He said, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that means, number one, we keep focused on our purpose. I should say number two. And number one, we do it with patience. That's the second point. Patience. Paul says in verse 14, be patient with all. Paul said this to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. Since God chose you. Keep that in mind. God chose you. And when did God choose you? When, when, when you had blood on your hands. Right? God, in, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since God has chosen you, and you were no prize to be won, neither was I, to be holy, the holy people he loves, you must, what should you do? Clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults, and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, here it is, the Lord forgave you, and so you must forgive others. Listen, the person you're trying to care for and keep the goal in mind. If they hurt you, understand hurting people hurt people. Keep doing good. Be patient with them. We'll call it a close right there. I want to close with two questions. I'll put this on the screen for you. It'll be up after the service, so don't freak out. I say two questions, and it's really two questions with a bunch of sub-questions, all right? First question. When it comes to family leadership, on a 1 to 10 scale, how are you doing as a leader in your home? Also on a 1 to 10 scale, in regards to family leadership, how well do you submit to leadership in your home? Uh, that wasn't a gesture to you, sweetheart. I wasn't gesturing to you. <laughs> how well do you submit to leadership in your home? On a 1 to 10 scale, how well do you receive instruction and admonition? Whew, that's a fun one. How well do you receive it when, when somebody admonishes you in the faith or gives you instruction? 
What can you do to better honor the family leadership structure in the church and at home? Second question, two sub-questions to this. When it comes to family partnership, on a 1 to 10 scale, how well are you partnering with others to help them to thrive, whether it be in your home or whether it be at the church? And what can you do to improve as a brother or sister in Christ?